0: Hello, and welcome to The Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business, and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bulmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined this afternoon by Jack Rivlin, the founder and CEO of The Tab. Started while Jack was a student at Cambridge University in 2012, The Tab hoped to bring energy, levity, and a tabloid edge to the dull and worthy student papers of the time. It used volunteer journalists to report on the things that actually mattered to them, and it soon grew to plenty of other universities across the UK. In 2016, Jack raised a few million pounds of investment from none other than Rupert Murdoch himself, who Jack and his partner met the week after Glastonbury, with glitter still stuck to their faces. After expansion into the US, the tab's fortunes began gradually to wane until Jack decided to sell up entirely at the start of 2020, a process that became a fascinating ordeal in its own right. In a wonderfully honest episode, Jack tells us just how hungover he was for that infamous meeting with Rupert Murdoch. He gives us the inside scoop on the Aziz Ansari story that broke the internet. He tells us how one of the tab's early legal corrections is now used in journalism textbooks. He warns against the perils of the Facebook algorithm and he discusses why newsletters might just be the media outlet of the future. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members' club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'll say hello properly. (laughs) But it's interesting you mentioned the sale of the tab because that must have been about six months ago now. How has that half a year in post-tab life been treating you, Jack? Good. It's very different. It's a real relief. I I think it takes, you know, um,
1: takes a few months to just adjust to your new life and come out the other side of it because... That wholesale process, um, I did not enjoy, really, the whole no. sort of two years or whatever it took. So it takes a bit of time to just get used to not thinking about that every waking moment, but I now feel so much more relaxed. It's great. Yeah. Oh,
0: and you grew your hair in that in that <laughs> period. It's still fairly long. Do you know, this is the second growth, so I grew it. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to cut my hair um, from,
1: uh, from the start of trying to sell the business until the end, which ended up being about 20 months, so nearly two years. And it was long. It was like down to my chest. Wow! Then I cut it two days after finally closing the sale. And I haven't had a haircut since then uh, because obviously I've been observing the rules. Um, (laughs) But I've got one booked. It was going to be today, but I cancelled it for this. Wow. Did did you really? I did. I did. Yeah. So you're among
0: the last people who ever sees it this long, which is just for you, Joe. That's very, Um, very kind. So so can we go back to the start of the tab journey if it's not too traumatic? Your (laughs) hair was probably very different then. I imagine a very clean cut Jack setting out in Cambridge in 2009, was it when you kicked off? Yeah, sort of fresh.
1: I looked like I was about 12 until I was sort of 25. Um, (laughs) I was at Cambridge and with a couple of other friends, we were writing for the student paper and we realised that none of our friends were reading the articles we were writing because... Mm. It was all sort of, you know, here's my opinion on how to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. <laughs> it was Premier League football match reports, you know, that we'd just written from watching TV. You know, it's just stuff that basically everyone, when they're a student journalist, thinks this is what I should be writing because this is what in what's in the paper. Mm. But no one was saying anything new. And we decided, let's start our own thing, um, which is online only, which was quite revolutionary at the time. Yeah and which really focuses on kind of the local people and stories and drama from within the student bubble. So we weren't gonna do, you know, global politics. We weren't gonna do Premier League football. We were just gonna do student stories, stuff that happened in the town. And we made it very tabloidy. I mean, this was was before a few tabloid scandals that have kind of lowered their reputation. Mm. Um, You know, phone hacking for one, hadn't really broken and tabloids hadn't really gone down their clickbait route that they're on now. So we liked the kind of scoopy vibe of the Red Tops, and we wanted to incorporate that. So it was very tabloidy at the beginning. It was called the Tab because people who go to Cambridge are called Can Tabs or Tabs It's like a derogatory name for someone at Cambridge if you go to Oxford. But obviously, it also sounds like tabloid, so it was a pun. And, yeah, that was the idea, just to make it quite sort of scoopy, tabloidy, jokey, and very local, And it was like an instant success. Cambridge is a small bubble, uh, the university bubble, and people really liked it, and they probably thought it was kind of ironic them having a tabloid because, you know, that taste is slightly more snobby. We also got quite a lot of criticism for that same reason, but we had, I think, about 10,000 people reading it every day in the first week, and it just grew and grew from
0: there. So what were the first kind of big stories you broke? What were the things that put you on the map? Really early on, there was like this
1: I'm talking the first week. There was a swan that kept attacking students. I really didn't expect that to be a hit, but it was. Called it the Asper Swan. And then we had an academic punched a student in a kebab shop, which Perfect. was told. And then our first brush with something a bit bigger, I guess, was um, there was a and I should say this story had to be retracted. Um, <laughs> there was a, a news round presenter called Lisa Mazimba who came to Cambridge. And we're kind of on a night out with a few students. And we published this story called Booze Round, highly defamatory story for which we apologised. I won't rehash it all. Um, There's an apology online if anyone wants to read it. But basically accusing him of having uh, kind of dishonourable motives, let's say, and published that. And that went huge, got picked up by a few national papers. And then we got a legal letter from Lizo and his firm. And that was quite a chaotic time yeah I, I even contacted private eye for help and they actually gave us some advice so i mean i have to say it was really fun but it, it was irresponsible of course and,
0: um yeah good fun <laughs> wasn't it used as an example in kind of graduate journalism courses yeah someone sent
1: me a photo from one of their journalism lectures and it was like a media law lecture and it was on the projector and they were talking it through i think the apology is really funny because normally when a paper apologizes for a story they don't want to rehash the allegations so it's quite Mm. sort of limited but this one which was written by lizo's lawyers kind of you know it was like he was not a sleaze and a perv he was not loitering around the toilets (laughs) which is true he wasn't i should say (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but it was really odd because the apology is therefore quite funny and sort of gives you a flavor of what the story was like anyway so yeah it's it's probably in the odd textbook
0: so you were all 18, 19 year old students at that point. None of you had any journalistic, I suppose, proper journalistic experience, nor did you have any of the kind of legal expertise. No. W- were you just, I mean, what was that like? That must've been quite liberating, but I guess that you didn't know the rules in a way.
1: Yeah, it was liberating until that Lizo story. And then uh, the rules came crashing down on us. I th- And I think that was like, obviously a big lesson. Um, we had we were in two of us were in the sort of law college of Cambridge. Neither of us did law, but there are a lot of lawyers in our college, and we kind of got the senior tutor to give us some advice, and he was mm. fairly horrified. So yeah, that was a bit of a learning. I mean, we were embracing a style of journalism that is pretty reckless at the best of times. So when you throw in some nineteen-year-old overconfident assholes uh, mm. into the mix. It makes for quite wild stuff, and we had a few um, screw ups like that. We, I remember, we uh, Stephen Hawking had been ill in hospital, and uh, this was about a year before we launched the tab. And then, for some reason, um, one of our news writers had found the story and hadn't realised that the story was from exactly one year previous, so it was, it was right. a year old, and published a story saying um, Professor Hawking was in hospital, he was actually fine. And obviously, you know, he's a huge global name. It, it got massive attention, and the university really, really lost it with us over that. Uh, again, he's a Cambridge
0: um, alumnus, is he not? Yeah, well, he was an academic there academic as well. Of course, actually, least. A, a
1: member of staff, um, but he... <laughs> What's not ill in hospital at the time it was a huge mess up they were really angry about that there were a few like that like
0: you know obviously we had no real idea what we were doing no. but we were having fun absolutely so everyone on the on the in the tab then was kind of volunteer student writers which mm. i mean it, it, that's obviously got difficulties as we just said but were there any kind of advantages to that were people um i don't know more free was it was there any kind of good things about that lack of professionalism
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i mean we were going for a style that was all about uh not doing the normal student paper really tedious style either publishing press releases from the university or you know making the mistakes i mentioned at the start so i think it was good to have people in the same way that when you have golf lessons, they say, it's almost better if you've never played before because you won't have le- won't have learned a bad swing and bad yeah. habits. It was a bit like that. Like, it was good to have people who just wanted to be funny, whereas the people who sort of had journalism experience and stuff were stuck in a style we didn't really want. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it made it more freewheeling, uh, and that was very much what we were going for. Um, but, you know, when later when we sort of became a proper company and raised money, we had to put in a lot more structure. And training just yeah. to avoid those kind of mistakes.
0: Was there a point when you realized that it was going to be more significant to your career than, say, your degree? Did you ever think about just leaving your degree completely? When did you realize that it was basically going to be a business in its own right beyond your yeah. university years?
1: I, I didn't want to leave my degree completely because I couldn't have carried on doing it. So I wouldn't have been a student yeah, that's
0: true.
1: anymore. And <laughs> actually, I, I definitely was more into it in my degree because it was just more fun. Um but I was quite skeptical about it being a business. So there were three of us co-founders and George, one of the three, he was really keen on it as a business and I didn't really buy into it. So I left university, did a little gap year. And then I, I went and got a job in journalism. Actually, I did a master's in journalism and then got a job at the Evening Standard doing night shifts, which is sort of, you know, turning up on people's doorsteps at 10 p.m. with some horrible story. Interesting, uh, not the most pleasant job but you know i really wasn't that sure and i was kind of desperate to get on a journalism grad scheme and george really pushed the idea of it being a business and tamar our other co-founder just said that and I, i'm not into it it was fun but mm. not as a business so it took me a few years actually during which time the cambridge tab carried on without us and kind of proved that it could um, stick but george also launched got yeah he got Durham going yeah and I then sort of in my spare time with him joined to launch at Exeter and University of East Anglia and UCL and I think that then was enough for me to think okay this can work elsewhere and then we raised a bit of funding and it was only then that I quit the evening standard and worked
0: on it properly yeah so how did you go about getting advertisers I can imagine it's uh an unusual product to sell both the combination of jokey studenty stuff and tabloid press in one yeah You're not getting um rolex for example no. to pay the i bills. mean look it's
1: <laughs> not a great combination for for business trying to sign up you know big advertisers while well, writing about academics uh punching people in kebab shops but you know initially it was easier because we were just in cambridge local businesses are more tolerant and we had um you know the whole student audience so that worked quite well i mean i think I seem to remember when we were doing local ads, they was doing sort of like 15 grand uh, a year in revenue. I don't think it would get that now just because the world has changed. But, you know, decent for a student project. Mm. But Obviously, when it's comes to making a business, the clients are really different. We went for big brands and for uh, graduate recruiters, both of whom are quite sensitive about the raciness of content. And that was something, you know, for the first four years of the business, we sort of resisted. And just said, no, this is us, we're gonna do it how we want. But I mean, it, it really cost us probably a lot of money. So then we toned things down, we rebranded. I mean, like you'd have to be pretty familiar with the tab to have seen this journey, but it it became a lot more toned down in terms of the ratiness. Um students changed too, but I think you know, a big
0: part of that was we needed some revenue. There was, of course, a big inflection point. And when are you when you searched Jack Rivlin? The big thing that comes up a lot is um this picture of you with glitter on your face walking into a meeting with oh. Rupert Murdoch. Seems okay. to be one of these things that's just stuck, a lot like the glitter, I suppose. Yeah. But it's um it's well, how much truth is there in that? And um how hungover and drunk, I suppose, were you? Yeah. Is the question.
1: So it, it is true, but I should say also that I made a big concerted effort to get it to stick, which I can explain. Uh <laughs> please do. We were actually really struggling to raise money. This is 2016. We'd been we'd launched the tab in, in the US. We'd been there for a year. We'd done a venture round before, so our costs were really high and our revenues were really poor. And you know, we were burning a lot of money. We managed to get a sort of a bridge from one of our investors that was going to keep us alive, but I don't know if the US would have survived. Mm. And then um our investor mentioned that they'd had a meeting with Rupert Murdoch and they'd shown Rupert all, all their investments. And when it came to the tab, he said, cool, I want to buy it. So we, they set up a meeting and I will always regret this, but I really steered it towards them investing because I thought this was going to be a huge business, even though the writing was really on the wall. And I certainly kicked myself every day for not selling to Rupert Murdoch in that meeting. But anyway, we went and the only date we could get for the meeting was the Monday after Glastonbury, which was also the Monday after Brexit. So it was a sort of momentous week in everyone's lives. And... Neither of us wanted to miss Glastonbury, me and George, so we went and just went to the meeting on the Monday after. And I, I didn't have any shoes, so I had to borrow my friend's dad's because, you know, you can't turn up in muddy trainers to meet mm. Rupert Murdoch. It's actually a big decision what to wear. Uh, <laughs> what did you decide to wear in the end? Like uh, sort of startup uniform, you know, like a sort of casualish shirt, jeans and non-trainer shoes, like loafers, I think. Fine,
0: okay. Not, did you have a kind of VC, a quarter zip? They wear
1: that a lot in... I think that got bigger later. I wasn't aware of it. Fine. It wasn't quite my startup uniform. I still don't own one. But I guess I was sort of, you know, I didn't quite back myself to go full Zuckerberg with him and turn up in pyjamas. <laughs> wanted to look smart. So, yeah, we met him and we were really hungover and had, like, sort of glitter on our faces because, as you said, it's really hard to get off after a festival. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was great. Like I prepared a lot for the meeting on the sort of monday like beforehand and you know in the week before and we i just printed out a book of all our stories that the sun or the times or wall street journal or sky basically all his companies had covered mm. and just talked him through those and said you know we basically tried to create a, a version for students of what you you've done and he loved it caught him in a good yeah. mood and he just said cool so what do you want uh, and that was the moment i wish i'd sold the company but instead steered it towards investment he gave us a couple of million quid on the spot i mean he didn't have the cash but he agreed and then we hung out for like an hour which was quite cool you know especially post-brexit where i don't think he's the kingmaker that he was you know 20 years previously but he still had good insight into it um so that was interesting and you know we saw he was like showing us memes on his phone that he'd been sent this is a guy who Uh at the time was like late 80s i think cool guy i liked him then we kind of walked out and
0: celebrated and and that kept us going for a long time that money Did you say you say um you caught him on a good mood but i think it's kind of an ingenious gimmick to basically say this is all the stories that you've got from us already you are basically yeah. yeah been using this for free so i mean you say you regret the um the not selling i think it's admirable not to in a way i was going to ask you that later on but Isn't it better to, um, you probably might be kicking yourself now if you had sold. I don't know. You can never know is my point.
1: Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Maybe he wouldn't have been keen and we would have got nothing. Maybe he would have been keen and it was a disaster in some other way. But, you know, I think his investment money valued the company about 10 million quid and we sold it for less than a million. Mm. So let's say he would have bought the company for half or he invested that, it still would have been a much better deal. So, I, you know, in those terms, I regret it. But as you say,
0: who knows? And I had a great time the following sort of three years. I read before you saying that another investor, I think someone at Balderton Capital, which is a UK-based VC firm, if I'm right, mm. they put a chunk of capital in and then they said they wouldn't have invested if they didn't think it was a billion-dollar business. Did yeah. you ever kind of feel yourself inching towards that unicorn status when you looked at yourself in the mirror did you think wow this could be me
1: (laughs) i mean i should say in fairness to boulderton that was a speech that i asked one of them to give to our staff to like keep them up (laughs) i don't think i put the billion dollar idea in their head but like it was a bit of a line nonetheless obviously they were expecting or hoping for a big return yeah um i don't think we ever got anywhere near that like the high point was raising that news court money and maybe the year after where Revenue trebled and traffic doubled and it was all great for about 12 months. But even in that period, the best I was ever aiming for was 50 million, which obviously is just ludicrous to pluck a number out of thin air, but felt like something to aim at in the absence Mm. of proper goals. And yeah, it never felt like we got too close to that, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But clearly I've been drinking the Kool-Aid a bit because I could have probably sold the business for you know, whatever, 5 mil. And I think my attitude, which I often, when talking to entrepreneurs in their 20s, I really try and remind them of my experience. My attitude was like, this is my one shot. And therefore I should I should be pushing for 20 mil, 50 mil. And if I'm not getting anywhere near that, then I want investment money that's going to grow the business to that point. When in reality, like... It was not a business that ever should have scaled to the millions. It should have been a reasonably small business. There were a lot of things that weren't really working. We had no real clear idea of how you grew it or even like what we were supposed to be growing, even though we were working hard and, you know, very earnest. So yeah, it it would have been an amazing deal to sell at that price. But I was, you know, I had these ideas in my head that, that this was my one shot and that this was a good opportunity and that, you know, media was going to be hot when really it was just underpinned by Facebook. Mm. Um, so
0: I I missed that one. <laughs> You've spoken about the US and say that that was a big cash drain on you guys. Why did you decide to to go to the US? Is that just what all entrepreneurs do once they've done pretty well in the UK? They've got yeah. to take that side as well?
1: I think the thinking was probably about that logical. I <laughs> Look, it's a big market as anyone will say when they're persuading themselves to go. Um, and we basically thought, look, we have launched on all the good campuses in the UK, the ones we're launching on now aren't quite right for the tab, you know, they might be too spread out, or like not have the right subject mix among students, it just like the tab wasn't really sticking, once we got beyond the sort of top 30 or so universities. So. know, we were out of new um, lands to conquer in the UK. And we didn't have another strategy like, okay, let's, you know, just do a national website that's not really about being a student. So the only real growth strategy we could think of was to go to the US. And obviously, it was super exciting. Balderton were keen on it. And there are 20 million students in the US, although I later found out that most of those students are not you know that they're, they're aged over 25 they commute to a college where they do a two-year course they're not kind of what you'd classically think of yeah. as a college student or a university student in the uk so for the tab really the market just in terms of readers was actually only two or three times bigger in the us um but we didn't know that because we didn't do our homework properly we just literally turned up there i mean we decided to go and went that week and like mm. we gave a couple of staff members 48 hours notice that they were moving there which i it's just like one of these needlessly immature moves you make. But in a way, it was kind of impressive that we just got on and did it. And we really did get going fast. But there was no need to rush it that much. Um, we were very like, we need to be there in time for the new academic year. And it was sort of June. So we wanted to crack on. Yeah. But yeah, look, it wasn't super thought out. It was just like, there's the big market.
0: How do American campuses differ from from the UK ones, particularly in their kind of attitude towards student journalism? Yeah,
1: they take it a lot more seriously, a
0: lot more seriously, which, I mean, the
1: student journalism is of a better standard. Mm. Uh, You know, Harvard has its own printing press. They print daily. And a lot of these student paper editors take a salary, and I think they take a year off. They definitely get paid. So that is very different. They take it more seriously. The other side of that coin is they take themselves way more seriously to an obnoxious degree. (laughs) Um, I mean, look, (laughs) just kids. I don't want to slag them off too much. I was very (laughs) self-important too, and probably still am. But they, um, yeah, they're they're really good at it. It was much more fierce competition. There were more publications on each campus. It was really hard. We really struggled in the Ivy League because they, yeah, they take it super seriously and they have these prestigious names. And I think actually our brand was not great for there because it's mm. tabloidy and jokey and um, sweary and British and they're just so not like that. So we did better at the kind of big state universities, like a sort of Penn state where there's 50,000 people, people are quite down to earth, It's more of a mix. Uh, and there's less of a kind of like obsession with their university brand. Although I'd say, in America in general, there's more school spirit anyway. So there are some good conditions. The whole campus vibe, like it's just a much bigger deal, university mm. in America, both for people who are students and and the sort of local areas. But yeah, it was hard. We struggled. There were other people doing what we were doing too, this kind of pan-campus approach, uh, who'd raised even more money than us. So that was a struggle because we were competing for journalists. Well, I think like strategically the real look, we shouldn't have gone to the US. There might have been a scenario where we made the US work by going really slowly, probably don't even hire anyone in the US, um, and just slowly get a foothold on certain campuses and stay really true to your brand. But our approach of going there and throwing loads of money at it and hiring 20 people was really mistaken and wasteful, and that was probably never going to work. The real flaw wasn't actually that. It was, we, we basically decided, to make this the sort of business which gets VC returns, you know, 10x valuation, we can't just like be the student paper on every campus. We need to basically create a really scalable big business. And our idea was, could you use tech to provide the kind of journalism training that we'd done by, you know, human to human over the phone and in person, which would give you real scale. And then could that become a platform for anyone to learn about journalism? Um, So that was the hypothesis we tested. We hired a tech team, who were really good, but like I, our strategy was never going to work, um, and it was really expensive, and it meant that in the US we really lowered the quality of the journalism. You know, look, it's volunteer journalism; it's never going to be the Times or anything approaching it. And you're working with people who are new, but we literally let anyone publish anything, and that was a further. Well, actually, I don't think that was necessarily the strategic error. The error was trying to publish that many people and spending loads of money on tech but it also meant that our editorial standards fell which was just kind of a shame.
0: I suppose a big part of that US invasion if we want to call it an invasion was uh, babe.net it seemed like a very interesting premise at the time a kind of um, proto I don't know I can't even talk about this without sounding (laughs) horribly out of touch but it was basically young feminism um, in a way we hadn't seen it before I want to use words like punky but I think that's pretty outdated but anyway yeah. it was activist and it was in your face definitely yeah i mean i certainly
1: embarrassed myself a lot trying to describe it in sort of mm. vc pictures in new york yeah. the tagline was for girls who don't give a fuck it was like sort of sassy feminist news brand that wasn't that political i guess it, it was kind of activist and a, a slightly angry but it was also really jokey mm. and ironic but aimed at quite a young audience and I, like it had a lot of small successes. So we built up a really big audience really quickly, the brand really resonated, that was obvious. Uh, we broke some quite big stories. And we launched like a paid subscription model for this video series that had about a 1000 girls, most of them aged under 20 paying for it, mm. which is quite impressive, you know, getting yeah. paid. Um, so it, uh, I mean, it had a lot going for it, but we didn't have the money to really pursue that properly. Again, I think it's one of those Had that brand been attached to a small group of people two or three people who had grown more organically, they might have really made it work. But the
0: way we approached it was too aggressive uh, to sustain. The big story I remember when it first came on my radar was the Aziz Ansari story, of course. What do you remember from that time? Because, I mean, that was referenced on SNL. That was truly put yourself on the map, whether it was in a good way or a bad way. Your name was out there. What do you remember from that and from the kind of very complex, messy Twitter dissection afterwards?
1: It's a weird one. I wasn't involved in the story at all. In fact, I only learned of its existence when it was published. And I was in London at a house party. And I just literally looked at the app on my phone that told you how many people are on the website. And it was like 50,000 live. It was like more traffic than I'd ever seen. And I just thought, fucking hell, what's going on? Looked, saw it, read it. I think, I guess I probably would have liked to have known about it, but it wasn't a big deal. And yeah, and then like all hell broke loose. It was like leading the news everywhere. I flew back to New York the next day, actually, just by chance I was anyway. And it was like, I heard people on the subway carriages talking about it. Like it was mad. I've never been involved in, in a story that big. It had millions and millions of views. Um, and yeah, and, and Saturday Night Live did two sketches on it, two weeks in a row. Like it was a big deal. And we got a lot of shit for it. I, I think like, I don't know. It's an interesting one to revisit. I don't. I don't think. Look, I don't think it was um, libelous uh, or inaccurate, but like, I don't know how fair it is to pick up on um, kind of people's cack handedness. I don't look. The whole thing hinges on whether you think Aziz Ansari is being cack handed or if he was being a real dick. I don't think anyone would go that much stronger than a real dick, but I can't really make my mind up. I know like the sourcing was right. They didn't make any mistakes in that. I think a lot of people were jealous of the scoop and hadn't heard of us and just assumed that we were like complete idiots who who didn't understand how to do it. And there was a lot of like people who had done the Columbia journalism masters thinking that they're experts on on reporting. Whereas like clearly we subscribe to a much more kind of freewheeling, scoopy approach anyway. And I was also just loving the the attention in the traffic. It's what we wanted. But I don't know, like, everything that's happened in the last few years, I feel a lot less into the whole cancel culture, um, you know, pulling people up on their own sort of, like, mistakes that don't necessarily reflect their deeper character. So I don't know. I'm really confused about it even now. Yeah. Um, I think, like, we probably handled the aftermath quite badly because there was a bit of doubling down from the team and, like, You know getting in people's faces when really like we should have just maybe looked a bit more responsible but like it was a fucking good scoop and there is no doubt in fact i know this like some of the titles who gave us shit for it you know who thought this is you shouldn't be publishing this story had been trying to get this source who gave them the story to talk to them about it so like there's definitely i mean new york media is i would actually describe it as a vile place a lot of it like the sort of magazine journalist world they're just really nasty and jealous and bitter. Mm. I mean, it's having a real toxic moment at the moment in particular. So I think there was a big element of that. I, I don't know, like, look, I run a newsletter now that's quite sort of gossipy, it's about sport in the UK. And I wonder like, would I do a story like that now? Like I, I did one yesterday sort of like joking about someone being at a party that prostitutes were at. I don't know if I would do the Aziz story, I'm really not sure. As you can see, I'm confused. <laughs> I now have a very coherent
0: view. I think that's the best view to have sometimes. <laughs> the slightly incoherent one. Yeah. Well, Aziz Ansari, who I'm a huge fan of comically, got a he got a new very candid and raw stand-up special <laughs> hooked onto that. So if nothing else, there's that, I suppose. Indirect. Yeah. I'm incredibly intrigued by um when you talk about the New York media world being vile, as someone who has always dreamed in that Toby Young way. Yeah of going over and being an Englishman in New York and seizing the day. Yeah. What's it really like when you get out there?
1: Yeah. Like that book was one of the first things I read when I went. Mm. Yeah. I think there's been a few changes. I mean, I'm sure some of the underlying vibe of it all is quite similar. And I wasn't moving in the sort of fantasy fair circles that he was, but I, I think like, look at the moment, America is having one of its sort of bouts of sanctimony where people are just turning witch hunt on anyone who's, you know, committed the most minor indiscretion. And I think that, that just, honestly, it just happens there every 20 years and Mm. and, um, it will kind of burn itself out. So I don't, I I don't think, I, I can't really speak too much to that, but I think social media has changed the atmosphere a bit, which is there is a dishonesty about the way that people there um publicly talk versus how they talk privately and and i think that kind of manifests itself in two strands there's like the one that i was really involved in was the vc backed media world it was a huge bubble the sort of 2014 to 16 facebook driven media bubble where vcs were pouring all their money into these stupid businesses like ours and people were desperately trying to find a way to make themselves sound different and impressive when really we were all just like getting loads of traffic from Facebook. Mm. And so you had all these people just saying the most ridiculous things like, you know, we're trying to own the conversation around animals or, you know, like we have this form of engagement that is unrivaled. It just like complete bollocks. Meanwhile, their content was absolute crap and everyone was secretly getting traffic from stuff that they never wanted to talk about on podcasts or at coffee meetings mm. and occasionally you get someone privately who'd just be honest enough to admit that so i think that was one form of dishonesty that i encountered and found really grating um because you'd see people doing big funding rounds talking about their impressive audience size and then you'd know that all their traffic actually came from walkthrough guides to zelda or something wow. these are real examples <laughs> <laughs> then the other strand is the like performatively woke vibe which has persisted and got worse. I didn't get too dragged into that, I think. But you encounter it. And it's it's more malicious than the VC one. Like the VC thing is fundamentally about people trying to raise money and sell ads. Mm-hmm. And it's quite just like celebrating your own false achievements. Whereas the performative wokeness was way more about cancelling people and you know trying to ruin people's lives in order to demonstrate your own credentials as a right-thinking person. And, you know, I actually think like early on social media has been responsible for an amazing resurgence in feminism. Like when I was at university, feminism was like dead, really, or quiet. And, you know, I watched on university campuses over time, it, it really grew. And I think social media has been a big part of that. I think there are plenty of other examples of how it's been a really important part of rebalancing the kind of nature of what we talk about publicly and politically. But... It got really poisonous and it seems to have got really, really poisonous now, more so in America than here. Mm. Um, you know, and you have like people getting cancelled for um not asterisking out swear words, even though no one did that a few years ago. And you know, it's just like the rules of change, but only the mob gets to set them. So I I saw a lot of that. I didn't encounter that much of it firsthand, thankfully. <laughs> um, I sort of give those situations a wide berth. But I thought that was really ugly. And, you know, I, I guess to return to the Toby Young point, you know, he talks a lot about how people are quite gossipy and self-serving. And that used to manifest itself way more as kind of sucking up to celebrities, getting invited to parties and crowding out your journalistic rivals, you know, in a publication or wherever. But I think it's just, it's just turned much nastier now. And it's become much more about trying to portray people as evil,
0: really. So that's a nasty twist when you speak about the um those facebook driven companies were they the ones kind of ushered in by the era of buzzfeed and mashable and things like that yeah those big kind of sites and then everything in its wake
1: the thing is like we were all playing the same game so i really i can't um lay into them too much like we used to we used to get people to write articles about why their hometown was the best town in the world because it would just like be really widely shared among people in that hometown and like None of our audience was students. We just wanted page views to chalk up traffic. We used to do all, all kinds of little hacks that would just juice the numbers, but weren't really building an audience. And that's just because you get put on this treadmill where you're raising money. You've got to grow big enough to justify more fundraising. Yeah, it's really hard to get off. Um, and you're trying to sell ads. And, you know, there's always something I still don't really understand is what those ad buyers exactly wanted. But, we, you know, we were chasing scale for that reason. And yeah, I think like BuzzFeed and HuffPo before them really created a mm. lot of that culture. But like, really, it just came from the fact that you could get a lot of traffic from Facebook. So then that was an arms race.
0: And you're beholden, obviously, to this algorithm, whatever an algorithm really is, or this particular algorithm is. But around that time, you hear people talking about it changing subtly and then quite dramatically. I suppose away from that kind of content, it realized it wasn't necessarily the quality that It seemed to be, as you've said. Yeah, Is that your understanding?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird because obviously we all knew that a lot of the stuff that we were doing to serve the algorithm was like not really the kind of... Like, you you know, you got a sense of your own quality. And we were doing loads of stuff that we were really proud of, but it was the tip of a very deep iceberg. And some of the stuff below the water was like not really the stuff we wanted to be doing, but it, it did traffic, which is just, you know, we used to talk about brand stories that are good for your brand and traffic stories that are just for traffic. And, you know, you have to do a lot of them. And like, I don't know, it's weird how anyone ever really believed that a successful business could be built that way because for the audience, it's obviously a shit experience, but it's still going on. Like, you know, if you go on local paper website in the UK at the moment, it's absolutely you know sort of drenched in ads because that's the only way to make money is to have loads of ads and to get a writer to write 24 stories about, you know, what's Holly Willoughby wearing on TV this morning and what's happening in Coronation Street, like not local journalism and not stuff that readers really value. But, you know, if you want to make money in that way from media, you just need to make the content as cheap as possible and you need as many ads as possible. So you can't really blame people for going that way. The alternative is, you know, you go for something more like what you guys do, which is more about having a narrower audience who are much more deeply engaged and you know willing to kind of spend money with you and so on and and therefore you've got more premium advertisers you want to get on board with that i don't think there's that much room in the middle where you can be um a bit of both of those things it's really hard
0: i hear people now talk about global niches i don't think we've necessarily got a global niche we're probably broader than that but graden carter was on on the business of fashion podcast saying that if he was going to do a new magazine it would be about he was looking at a desk calendar and he was saying it would be about desk calendars but i'd get the fifty thousand people who care most about desk calendars and i'd get them in obviously he's now got his own much broader yeah Yeah, he
1: hasn't gone that way i'm i'm kind of the same again like i said i'm doing something about sport and i guess my niche is just like it's a very specific form of humor and humor is the same thing but I don't know. It's easy to say, yeah, you should just do a niche thing. I look personally, I'm not someone who I don't really like doing B2B. I like doing consumer facing stuff. I like doing stuff that I'm into. So I'm never going to go that niche, which is a big handicap when it comes to making money from media. Um, because I think it's easier to make money B2B or in a really narrow niche. But
0: yeah. Was there a moment when you realized that the tides were turning on that algorithm when the media bubble was popping and you were, that was only down from there? I mean, it all happened
1: very quickly. I think mid-2017, Facebook changed its algorithm. And there had been previous algorithm changes, but we hadn't really noticed them because we were quite late to really understanding the full power of Facebook. So we got on it quite late, not really had that much of the benefits, had just about cracked the system, built our whole business around this idea of Facebook traffic, and then they turned the taps right down. And I think our traffic like I don't know, we probably lost about 30% overnight and it just stayed that way. Um, And this was, yeah, sort of mid-2017, which had been our high point for revenue as well. Like everything had been going really well for the previous year, just sold our biggest deal. Um, It was all rosy. And then, yeah, I'd say then, after that, it just precipitated three years of, you know, basically laying people off, uh, slowly closing bits of the business and sort of winding things down. So we went from... I don't know, we were probably about 40 people at that point in the business, maybe slightly less, 37 or something. Went from that until, you know, the point at which I sold the business, it was eight people. So there was a sort of gradual um, reduction. And I guess, look, what I should have done then, there and then, because I already had misgivings about New York. It just felt like we were spread too thin, it wasn't going to work. I should have shut the whole US business there and then and just focused on getting the UK to profitability with some cash in the bank you know, stopped having a tech team, stopped having a big sales team even in the UK and just slimmed down. But it's easy to see in hindsight. I, I didn't quite foresee how far I had to go.
0: So what? when did you get out of the US? About 2018, is that right? Yeah, we shut the tab in the US
1: in sort of early 2018 because that also like, it just hadn't quite worked editorially. It, we didn't, you know, you have the sense on each campus of like, have we really cemented ourselves in there? Like in the UK that we had on on sort of, yeah, 20 something campuses. And in the US, it was like maybe eight or maybe fewer even. And it just didn't feel like it was working. And we tried different things, given up. So I shut that in March and then BABE lasted for the remainder of the year. Closed it just before Christmas 2018.
0: How old were you at that point, Jack? End of 2018, I was 29. So you're still young and you've (laughs) got the sense maybe that your business, your first business is already winding down how did you feel in yourself approaching your 30th birthday when most people are only on the you know the upward slope they're finally earning good money they're getting senior positions did you feel a bit conflicted like a i've set something up but b maybe it's not working was it difficult
1: well yeah i did i mean i thought okay i'm shutting the us gonna come back to the uk and let's see maybe i'll really enjoy it because i won't have to sit on a plane every few weeks and you know it's back to the business i love but you know, by that point, like you've basically run out of energy and lost a lot. You know, a lot of friends who you'd hired have had to go, and still had some friends there. But it just the excitement was gone. I realized it took me a few weeks, but then I really realized suddenly the excitement's gone. I just want to get out now because, mm-hmm. like you say, you're not there's no growth trajectory there. It's not like I owned the whole business and I could completely rebuild. We didn't have that much cash. I knew it was it was going to be pretty small. So yeah, I mean, look, that year was sort of the following sort of six to nine months, actually the whole of 2019, I found quite a painful adjustment. I turned 30 that year, it wasn't going well. Initially I thought I'll just leave, but then I was sort of persuaded. Well, I persuaded myself too, to stay and and sell the business and just get an outcome. And yeah, I think that was like, you know, certainly wasn't midlife crisis territory at all, but it was was hard. It was like the hardest period I'd had um, really professionally ever and coming to terms with the idea that like this big thing that you thought was going to make you a millionaire and a super success was a failure and that you were now going to be turning 30 and have to start again was like quite hard in a way you know thinking back on it now I'm sort of nearly 32 I'm actually really glad I went through that at the time and I'm not experiencing that now you know because by the time I finally got the bloody business sold I'd completely come to terms with it and I feel less now a sense of God I need to kind of succeed by X age than I've probably ever felt so I think look it was it was very hard and actually what came next um, trying to sell the business was the worst bit but it allowed me to adjust while you know I was still doing that which I guess has, has been a really
0: good thing in the long run I can imagine with any founder who goes pretty much straight from university into, setting up a business you have to learn things like five times quicker than anyone else most people probably i don't know come to certain realizations in their late 30s early 40s does you think it accelerates your wisdom in some ways
1: yeah i look i i've always been quite i think immature a bit young for my age and then the last couple of years i think that's i feel i've grown up a lot and i think the experience of like a proper failure. I know we managed to sell the business, but it, it was a failure in terms of what we were trying to achieve. That experience has just maybe grown up a lot, and I I, you know it's good to get a failure under your belt around thirty because it's really prepared me for what's what's next. So there's a ton of positives that come out of that, and I'm sure, God willing, if I do get a, a proper success, that you know I'll look back on that as as kind of the making of me.
0: Let's talk about that sale period then, because your medium piece about that is brilliant and admirably honest about your own shortcomings, but also the kind of difficulties and nastiness of some of the the wider media business, I guess, and the investment community. If there was kind of one or two things, there's loads of lessons in it. But if there's one or two you had to pick out as really proper, actionable lessons, what would you say they are?
1: Yeah, there's one big one, which is don't sell your company don't even bother talking to someone who has not got the money to buy your company in cash in the mm-hmm. bank. Because I did agree to say, sell to these, this buyer who turns out they didn't have the money and they wasted nine months of, of our time. And look, that's a, it's a lot of wasted time. It's in the scheme of your life. It's not um, the longest amount of time. But the stress that comes with that, with selling to a buyer who's fucking you around and constantly you know, acting shady and can't complete Mm. it's such a stressful thing, especially when you're running out of money, like we were, that I really wouldn't recommend that experience to anyone. Um, because when you're in the mood, I was, which was like, I just want to get this done as quickly as possible. You know, having someone who's messing you around is really bad. What what I mean is on the one hand, it's bad to lose nine months, wasting your time with someone who hasn't got the money, but also there's a lot of stuff that comes with that. That's kind of equally unbearable. So it, it was a huge waste of our time. Um, this buyer you know they said they had the funding in place and a few people warned me saying like if they haven't got the cash they're not going to get it but they'd offered a higher price which seduced me was it significantly higher not really not really uh like 50 percent higher i guess but and you know double they, they offered i think 1.5 million we ended up selling for 750k so double that but you know it wasn't real so meaningless no, their true offer was close to zero and look i they just fucked me around loads. It was just like, for, as soon as we agreed to do it with them, everything kind of changed and the, everything just didn't seem right. They were dragging the heels. Um It was just really dodgy. And so, yeah, if, if anyone's ever thinking of selling a business, just don't, unless that you're selling it for stock in that company, that's obviously completely different. Um, But if, if it's supposed to be a cash deal and someone says, oh, you know, if they can't literally say it's in the bank and you may need proof if they're not a big company, I'd err on the side of getting proof then they are just a time waster they're going to try and raise the money um once you've agreed which is going to take them ages and they're not in control of or worse they're lying to you just to tip your company over the edge and pick you up on the cheap either way don't deal with them
0: you call them the lads throughout (laughs) the piece why do you call them that (laughs) because were they a bit blokish
1: you can work out who they were because they announced that they were buying us when um to the stock market when when the transaction was agreed and then they had to announce that they were pulling out Look, to be honest, I don't ever want to have to deal with them in any capacity. So I don't really want to start a war with yeah, them. Okay. Um,
0: they're just just not people I want to hear from. No, fine, fine. Well, hopefully they don't listen to this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I'm always dwelling on the tough bits, Jack. I don't know why. I, I, I'm sorry, because there's a lot to celebrate as well. But uh, in those, you know, that's often the most revealing stuff. Were there any really low moments when you thought I could just sell this for 10 quid if it just got this off my back?
1: Yeah, I, yeah. Look, don't, don't worry about asking about the tough bits. They're the interesting ones, particularly in this business. You've let me have my moment talking about the glittery face meeting with <laughs> Rupert Murdoch. Look, I never wanted to go that cheap because I wanted some money and because that would allow me to do my next thing. And, you know, I also didn't see the point. If it was going to go down that road, I got the business to a point in the sort of final year where it was breaking even. So we didn't have to sell, I still wanted to. So at that point, you know, the options were either sell it for a price that you're willing to take and 750 was the lowest, like we got offers lower, because when COVID struck, you know, we we lost some term sheets, we actually had offers for 1.2 million before COVID, but they became 750. And we had even lower offers. And I didn't want to take those because it just felt like what's the point for shareholders. In that scenario, I was going to just step down or stay as chairman, you know, yeah, and someone else would run the business, probably um, Grace, who's our editor in chief. So it was never, like, at that stage. But, I mean, there was a lot of time where I just wanted to throw the towel in. Yeah. And I was thinking... I was talking to someone the other day, and I was thinking, like, in a way, the lockdown was quite beneficial for me towards the end because, like, I found going into the office every day and just, like, trying to keep team spirits up when you have no real news quite hard. And I was, I was really struggling with that aspect. So, you know, if I'd had to be in there every day, I think I would have struggled to keep going through it. I mean, I think I still would have. I basically once these guys have fucked me around I was like I've got to get this done just for my own um sense
0: of achievement but yeah it, yeah. Was, it was hard at times. What did you do after you finally signed the dotted line? Yeah I I, I always thought
1: that I would sort of go on a huge rager you know with some <laughs> friends uh, and probably a year earlier I would have but I was honestly just so sort of I felt more zen having got it done. So I, my girlfriend is a sound meditation teacher and she was doing wow. a gong bath, if you're familiar with those. So I went to one of those, I had a Kit Kat
0: uh, and then I just came home and chilled. I cleaned the dishwasher with a toothbrush the next day. It was all very grown up. But was there, a, uh, I mean, without the, the gong bath, which is probably calming <laughs> anyway, was there a great um, weight off your shoulders? Did you yeah. feel like a new man? Was it like the day after exams are over? When you're- yeah,
1: and... It was like that, but also in this sense, I remember when doing exams at school or uni, it would take me sort of a week or so to unwind from it and really feel like it was over and I was free. Yeah. And it was like that, there was like this moment of immediate calm and happiness and relief and like, you know, jubilation. But it still took me like, honestly, until about Christmas to really unwind from that. And, you know, actually like I received my money on a slightly delayed basis anyway. so. There was also that element like until it's in your bank it doesn't really feel real but mainly it was just like gradually your days take up less and less time thinking about it i agreed with the buyers that i would help them sort of transition for a few months which wasn't super time consuming but you know you're still thinking about it every day so it was more like it gradually tapered off and then around christmas suddenly i was just like god i properly feel
0: um sort of like i've started the next chapter now so that was nice (laughs) So let's talk about the next chapter. What a lovely segue into the upshot, which is the sports gossipy, humorous sports newsletter, I'd probably say, that you founded much more recently. Why did you want to join the newsletter brigade? It's such an an interesting product, isn't it? Because they were the kind of height of 90s nostalgic internet culture, and now they're back and they're cool and high tech again. What's happened?
1: It's just uh, me chasing the media zeitgeist again just like the <laughs> facebook traffic um yeah look i mean for a while i was like i'm not gonna do media again it's just so screwed but uh, it's what i love doing and i always wanted to do something involving sport and media because those are sort of my two favorite things so it felt like a good time like you know i've got a bit of money and wisdom from the tab experience i'm we don't have kids um i don't have a mortgage so it felt like if I'm gonna do the thing that I've always dreamed of, now is the time to do it. Yeah. Because it will always be harder if I wait. And the newsletter thing, I, I look, I really believe in the newsletter as a format. I think it's really convenient for the reader. It's really nice that it caps your length, actually. Um and you know, for the for a media company, it's it's a better business because you own the distribution rather than relying on someone like Facebook who you're basically renting the space from and who will yeah. just put the price up every quarter so it, it feels much more um sturdy it's obviously like a little bit of a bubble at the moment because everyone's saying it's the future but uh, i like the format i think it suits well what i'm doing and what i'm doing is you know for me the i'm not that into kind of analysis and tactics and sport i'm into the soap opera uh, of you know the personalities and what they're getting up to and so the newsletter is a sort of weekly summary of of drama gossip and controversy from uk sport really so football cricket golf rugby formula one tennis etc and i'd seen how well newsletters had done in the us like when we were there the one type of media business that was really crushing it that was sort of in our youth space were newsletters like morning brew and the skim and the hustle so i'd seen how well they work but i um i wanted to do something that was a lot more jokey so i actually have a paid subscription model because i think while I will have advertisers, I can't, again, really rely on getting my sort of racy content accepted yeah. by all of them. So I it's free weekly to receive the upshot, but you can pay a, four pounds a month to get two extra editions a week. And I launched that paying um, system about six weeks ago. I've got 500 people doing it. So it's going yeah. well. Long way to go, obviously, to scale that. But you know I'm enjoying it, and I like how much closer I feel to readers it's just me Definitely. writing it um I like the intimacy of it and you know as you said it was quite a 90s thing and it kind of got replaced a bit by blogs which was a format that again I was still probably too young to be really involved mm. uh, by 2009 when we started the tab the whole blogosphere was sort of being overtaken by social media but I really like that intimacy and the slightly off the wall um freewheeling style of it all yeah. and that's really what I'm trying to capture
0: some of that spirit i agree that's what i like about it about every newsletter but about yours in particular which i subscribe to on a free basis at the moment but i may well <laughs> jack up the thing how many subscribers have you got you probably don't want to say that no, i can
1: say i don't mind i've got fifteen thousand. wow uh, free subscribers and then yeah a small percentage of them are paying so yeah i mean the uh, another thing i like about it is compared to the tab when I was never quite sure what the important metrics were. Mm. This one is super clear, you know, just got to get more people getting the free edition and more people paying. It's really, really simple. So that's nice. I like the simplicity of that.
0: Me too. Which, which bubbles do you think are, um, particularly tiresome? What are the cliches in the media world right now that you are thinking, God, when's this going to end? And, and if you say podcasts, fine.
1: <laughs> I actually think, uh, yeah. Gentleman's magazine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Look, I'm clearly no oracle when it comes to media. I think the whole landscape is a hell of a lot less annoying than it was six years ago when, like, we were supposed to believe that the best sites were these ones publishing just, like, clickbait crap. I don't know. Look, I, I, I really believe in podcasts as a format. I really believe in newsletters. I suspect, like, we're back to a much more sensible time where... Loads of people fail by piling into these formats because they think it's about the format. They think, "Oh, I need to have a newsletter, I need to have a podcast because a lot of the most successful businesses have them. But it's still about the content, isn't it? It's still about creating personalities and themes and and you know kind of regular features that people really love. And then once you've got that and you've got an audience built around it that you own, you could do all kinds of interesting things. So I'm not i don't I don't have the same kind of resentment um towards certain approaches uh, i'm trying to i mean look i'm sure there's some stuff that that is really annoying and obnoxious but i think the creator economy this whole idea that people can split off as individuals and monetize their audience directly you know on on Substack or, or wherever youtube patreon i think that's such a positive development and it makes a lot more sense because the internet is Often the logic of the internet is about removing intermediaries, which this does really well. And, you know, best of all, it sticks
0: one to Facebook and Google, which is always good news. Quite right. So before you go, Jack, we've got some questions we ask everyone. I often say they're quickfire, but to be honest, people often take a long time over these. You can go either way, but there's one of those I prefer. (laughs) No pressure. No. So, okay. What was the last piece of advice you gave, Jack?
1: literally i actually mentioned it earlier on this podcast but i spoke to someone last week who was 24 and saying that they were really struggling to get past the fact that they had missed their moment and everyone around them was doing so well and yeah. you know i haven't got much time which on the one hand sounds really ludicrous because the guy's 24 but i can really relate to that when i was 24 i felt way more like i was up against my peers and i needed to have success for a certain age and i think my voice was just you're really young yeah. uh what was my advice I, apart from look you've got so much time uh to get beyond that i'm not sure i actually offered anything that wise yeah. but i can really relate to that
0: <laughs> me too i think that's actually just good advice you are really young because 24 you do start to feel over the hill i wish i was 24 but i didn't do anything of worth at all until i was 26 when i think about it i didn't i really didn't do a lot It was kind of just noodling around, trying to work out what I was doing. And as a writer, that's kind of what you have to do. Write for things that no one's ever going to read and write and write and write. And then things start to happen. But, you know, at 26, I remember talking to my parents like, have I what on earth am I doing? You paid all this money for my education. I paid all this money. Yeah. And what the hell is going on? So if anyone's listening, he's 24 or 26 or 28 if you're 29 you're too old (laughs) no any age is probably young and this is a 31 year old so listen i've been around
1: yeah exactly you and i are the same
0: age and what the hell yeah
1: i think the advice i gave which i'm not actually well placed to give because i don't have kids was when you have kids you'll realize that none of this matters because that's what you always hear and i think you know it seems obvious for my friends who are having them Mm. so yeah i
0: yeah it's early is basically all the advice i could give that yeah a poor guy what phrase would you like to banish from the earth? Ooh. Um,
1: so the one I used to really hate was reach out because I always felt like it was um, venture capital types mm. trying to sound like sort of Don Corleone. But I actually think it's become so mainstream now I've really accepted it.
0: Yeah, I say reach out. I find myself typing it in emails. Yeah. But it actually is a good phrase for, I just wanted to contact you without being pushy. I just want to investigate this and just kind of reach out you know as opposed to saying I'm chasing you on this because it's really late yeah. well I forgive you for using it thank you very much <laughs> I think I'd
1: still ban it look I, I there are loads that I see and I'm the sort of person who gets really wound up by them but I'm now drawing a complete blank that's certainly of that school like yeah
0: you know, I agree yeah what's your worst habit quite lazy actually so that surprises me really
1: Yeah, this is something I don't hear anyone talk about as entrepreneurs. I hear people talk all the time about, like, be kind to yourself and don't push yourself too hard. And I think that's all valid. I'm not not denying that. But I'm actually quite lazy. Like, I will – if I don't have an important um, deadline, I can easily just pass time not working. I mean, Mm. I played tennis this morning, which is probably not great. And I will work hard and i work long hours – but I also can have a tendency to just drift if there's not something like really clear that I need to be doing there. And then, um, so I I'm still kind of, I've definitely improved my routine, but I'm still working out how now I have no shareholders or colleagues,
0: how I sort of make myself accountable for that. How's your concentration span? This isn't one of the questions, but I found mine in the last couple of years. I, I like to blame it on the pandemic because you can pretty much blame anything on that, but I can't read a book now for more than a page before I stop. And have to kind of go, God, I need to look at a phone yeah. do something else. This is boring. <laughs> Are you the same?
1: Yeah, mine really waxes and wanes. So I, it's definitely a problem I have a lot. But then mm. I also have periods of, um, I don't know, I, I can kind of get the bit between my teeth and have periods sort of, you know, three week periods of productivity where I'll read a couple of books. And then I snap back to it to the point that I have bought an old Nokia There's this movement to to use crappy old phones. They call it the dumb phone movement. Because for me, the big distraction is WhatsApp. That's like, I really struggle to not check it and message people all the time. So I now, I've just bought this Nokia, and I'm turning my iPhone off and even leaving it at home if I'm not working at home. And just using the Nokia, which is
0: the same number in the Nokia.
1: I mean, I've got a secret number that only my girlfriend knows. I'll
0: probably have to give it to a couple of other people like my parents. Almost like a pager. Maybe that's your next project. A kind of an SMS based (laughs) newsletter. that's 180 (laughs) characters or whatever it used to be. Yeah. Predictive text.
1: Interrupt you playing a game of snake. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Concentration is something I find reasonably hard. I dabbled with those smart drugs at university.
0: The Yeah. Did you find that worked? I did that in the third year. People were flogging it in the library. <laughs> yeah, I did. I found it. I found it really effective, and I took it a lot for my final year exams. It's good for concentration, but if you want to write a feature on it, a magazine feature, it doesn't seem to allow that kind of creative lateral thinking. No. The it, turns it, of phrase. It gives you like tunnel vision, doesn't it? So you can. Yeah. I was talking to someone about this this morning, weirdly, and it, it,
1: you can process something really quickly, like bash out something that you just need to type up. But you're, you're completely right; like you can't be creative on it
0: at all. No, definitely not. I wouldn't advocate drugs in general. Um, <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> uh, what are you most proud of in your career so far, Jack? Is there any kind of one big story on the tab that you think, wow, I'm really glad we did that. That was that was important. Oh, there
1: probably is. I find it really hard to remember all the stories. Damn, my memories become really poor for stuff like that. In the same way that I couldn't remember phrases I hate, even though I've got stronger views on it than most people. I think. Look, I'm most proud of getting the sale done because, not because it was an amazing result. And frankly, in kind of how people measure success, it wasn't as impressive as you know raising the money or you know getting all the growth. But in terms of like actually stretching yourself and doing something that you wouldn't you know that, that looked really hard and was really hard and and you learned a lot about yourself by miles it's, it's my f- finest achievement so i guess
0: that and then on the other hand to take you down again what's <laughs> your biggest uh failure so far do you think well i mean again again
1: it is the tab right because that you know was an opportunity to build a really big business and while i think there were a lot of sort of macro factors that meant we never would have made it work you know if you get given millions of pounds there's many different ways you can turn that into a success so i think the tab is is kind of my (laughs) biggest failure and my biggest achievement i mean look it's basically the only thing i've done so
0: (laughs) if you could learn one new skill what would it be coding
1: i think i wish i I can do a bit of light sort of you know html but i can't do anything better and i'm really envious of these people who can Knock something together because I kind of enjoy it. Like, I like languages in general and I enjoy doing a bit of coding, but I just don't think I have the time or concentration now to properly teach myself.
0: That's a good one, coding. I was going to say piano. I thought you <laughs> might want to take up piano, but <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love to be good at many things. Coding is quite a boring answer, isn't it? But, no, um... it's good. It's clever. If you could stick to one age, what would it be and why? This comes back to the old age thing. It must be swirling around in my head because I'm thinking <laughs> <it> a lot.
1: <laughs> I think you'd still go with 21. I'm not somebody who wishes they were at school. I lo- school's alright. I didn't love it. I enjoyed union stuff. I think 21's a pretty great age. Like you just don't have many responsibilities. I actually love this age now that you and I are both that. I think it's really fun because you know yourself a lot better, and obviously lots of new exciting challenges are coming up. And you know this is kind of our time where we can actually do interesting working things yeah. rather than just getting shouted at while on an internship. But for sheer youthful abandon yeah. and doing what you want without really any consequences, I think it's hard to beat 21.
0: Absolutely, I completely agree with you in that answer, especially in, in the fact that now is very much more interesting. And I and I like that, but I just remember being completely feeling indestructible at 21. Yeah, I, I realized I'd got it all worked out then. And I was so certain in things, I was fearless, I couldn't get a hangover do you know what I mean and I could bounce back from anything now you know everything is traumatic for me yeah. <laughs> a small argument on the bus or something you know <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a mess maybe that's just growing old as well <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what have you done recently for the very first time gone to the pub for the first time in a while um no what's topical so- that dates it yeah
1: uh, yeah, no, no, that's sort of a lame lockdown gag that we're all used to making. What, uh, what have I done recently for the very first time? Oh, lifted weights. I mean, I'm not a big gym guy at all. have got into my classes. I'm probably doing more exercise than I have at any point in my life. God, that's a boring answer, isn't it?
0: No, that's very good. What is your most treasured possession? We're nearly at the end of this. What's your most treasured possession? I always find these rounds so hard hopefully everyone does what's awesome. yeah.
1: my most treasured possession um oh by the way the thing I'm sorry I have to give this a plug the thing I've been doing for the first time that um I absolutely love is Huel the uh nice the for breakfast it's so not me but I absolutely love it anyway sorry most treasured possession <laughs> probably mine is it favorite. your Huel
0: shaker <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's up there Joe I'll be honest I like your Huel t-shirt you're wearing as well by the way <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: what is one of my most treasure we, possession i'm not a huge possessions person listen
0: this this one's hard but most people say something like their dog which isn't allowed or they say their family which isn't allowed if someone says something like a watch i go yeah respect fair enough but no one really has a possession you know what we might take that one out
1: no i want to have a good answer to it but i just don't know what it is it's probably oh really boring knives kitchen knives got got a couple for christmas and i just love them so japanese. sharp japanese
0: are they yeah. japanese
1: yeah, I don't know what the makes called, actually, so I can't, can't give it a plug, but they are Japanese,
0: and they're so good. It's got to be Japanese. Rolled steel. I don't know what it means, but a rolled steel <laughs> Japanese knife, 250 quid, fine. Top <laughs> yeah, the gone. onions. Um, is there a single book that's influenced you the most or that you find yourself recommending to people?
1: I'm actually really into George Orwell, which is such a sort of tragic answer, but The Road to Wigan Pier, I think, is like a book that I really love because it's him touring Britain, in what the 30s so it's sort of industrial Britain it's totally different world to the one we know but I think it's like always imbued me with a real interest in traveling around Britain and sort of like getting to know the world outside London a bit and I don't think that's given me any kind of virtues or anything but what it's given me is curiosity I think um which I've obviously taken advantage of by living in London my whole life. But uh, yeah, look, that's, that's the sort of like um, intriguing
0: read I'd really yeah. recommend, I think. And finally, do you have a personal motto or <laughs> a kind of mantra you live by?
1: I've got one which is Never Monday, which is don't make any social plans on a Monday. Uh, but that's not not quite at quite the level you want. Really embarrassingly, <laughs> my family have a motto that I think my granddad must have invented when you get a crest knocked up. And it is, I can't remember the Latin, but it translates as do not underestimate us. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, really telling because I think my family probably think they should not be underestimated. I can't I can't think of any kind of... I have a lot of like little principles that are, some of them are more high-minded than Never Monday. Oh, so here's a good one that I always do, which I did not come up with, but do the thing you least want to do first every day, which I think is a Mark Twain. There's something about eating a frog. I can never remember the exact wording of it. Eat a
0: frog for breakfast. We always got told at school. Yeah,
1: yeah. Same thing. I'm someone who optimizes for comfort, as they say. So I'll avoid the thing I don't want to do. And I found... I've got so many better results in life if I just start with the thing I don't want to do every day. It's normally, it's normally important. If I'm really dreading it because it's important, it won't be a minor thing.
0: Jack, thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot, Joe. Enjoyed it. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of The Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love The Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.